what are your guys' opinions, particularly as another as a player, on other players going beyond the chaotic stupid to actively stupid? So I'll give you an example. The party is first uh, session, level one, no powers. And the big bad shows up just to show up as DMs like to do. And one of the players decides to attack the big bad, which is just chaotic stupid, sure. Another one decides to follow it through its magic portal. That's beyond the level of just being, oh, I'm quirky and chaotic and I'm doing something dumb. That's, I'm doing the thing that anyone in this situation would know is a bad idea and I'm doing it. Honestly, in my opinion, that happens for one of two reasons. One, either your player's not immersed enough in the game or not connected enough in the game where they're willing to just do stupid shit, right? And then that, for me, is a red light. It's a warning sign as a DM to be like, hey, can or, or as a fellow player being like, hey, how can we get you to take this a little bit more seriously if that's the type of game we're playing, right? If you're playing a bullshit, mean nothing, let's just raffle stomp and murder hobo our way through it i mean sure do it as a dm i'm going to throw consequences at you for those actions you jump in the portal after the big bad evil guy congratulations give me your character sheet make a new character you're now his thrall and now you're gonna have to fight your old guy and see what i can do with this as a dm right the other reason why a player would do that is more on the dm side of things where if you are like me too kind of a dm players think they could get away with anything right and this is a game where you could do anything but within reason and it's it should be a lesson to dms who if that happens try to mitigate it in some way shape or form right we could have whole episodes about (laughs) that level of decision but there needs to be some mitigation the dm does need to take the reins at some point i was just i would just fucking kill him like, this is a no-brainer for me. Yeah. Let me tell you, in the last session, they're level one. The last session that we ran on Sunday, I put level one characters in a giant open room with four active gelatinous cubes and three more coming. And the puzzle here was to save as many NPCs as possible, because you guys were scoring yeah. a shit ton of them, and get up the ropes and out of the room. By the way, the gelatinous cubes can meld together and stack. I had... Given all of this information to the party, when Dave decided to run at one of them for the first time ever and attack it with his rusty great axe. Yeah. And I looked at him. He ran forward, and he hadn't gotten there yet because he used his whole movement. It was a big room. He ran forward. I said, are you sure? you understand? So I repainted the picture. He said, yeah, well, I would. my character's a hero. He would do that. All right. We're, we're beyond chaotic stupid yeah. at this point. And so then I said, I would find Dan saw this happening and said, I will go rescue him and ran forward with a bard. And and I said, okay, all right. And then Dave got up and he attacked it on the next turn. And I went, this thing is going to kill him. It will kill him the next time initiative comes around. It's just going to literally walk over him. And that is when Dan showed up and rescued his ass with the... A minor illusion. There was a minor illusion cantrip, so it's making a shit ton of noise and screaming from the corner... And so it went in that direction. And you Dave gave got, it like a 50-50 chance to either hit Dave or go in that direction. Yeah, I, ro- I rolled a die yeah. and it landed like... I noticed you rolled a die and then sigh with relief. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Dave got an attack of opportunity, but this thing was committed and it went in that direction. And then Dan and Dave sat there and talked about it for the next round of initiative. The two of them fucked off and got up the rope and away. Dave was about to lose all, what, 14 hit points from his barbarian in, yeah. one, in one movement phase. This was going to end poorly. 
So, no, I don't I don't care. If you're going to be, if you're going to be chaotic stupid, I will kill you. If you're going to be stupid stupid, I will kill you and laugh. I gave him a warning. Yep. That's all I'm expected to do. It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on Dungeon Master Tips. I'm Adam, and with me today are James and Dan, and this episode is called Power Creep. Bigger, harder, faster, deeper. I was hoping you were going to go with more of a, like, a Daft Punk feel with it, and I was like, yeah, Daft Punk. Then I went, no, this is this kind this of This is porny. Adam. This is kind of porny. Yeah, this I is like Adam. It, I don't know what you're yeah. expecting. <laughs> I leaned into the creep factor for you. There hey! Today's conversation is about a term that longtime fans of D&D often throw around late in an edition, but very few truly understand what power creep actually is. Normally, this is a conversation that you hear about in discussions about video game sequels, long-lived MMOs, or expansion packs, but what most people see as increasing difficulty or additional inclusions of rules or scope is not necessarily power creep. That's simply evolution. Some evolution is good and some evolution is bad, but the imbalanced difficulty levels between a goblin at level 1 and Demogorgon at level 20 is not power creep. Before we get into the definition of power creep, it's important to know that in a game like Dungeons & Dragons, power creep can happen in a variety of different ways, but the most common ones are in skill progression, effectiveness in combat, and movement. We're going to cover all of these today to some degree, as well as ways to limit, circumvent, or reset power creep, but there's something to keep in mind right off the bat. D&D 5th Edition, if played from the basic rules in the PHB, the Monster Manual, and the DMG, and any single published adventure is more or less inherently balanced. So let's take a look at one of the biggest complaints we hear about online whenever a new book is published. Let's dig into power creep. It's good. First of all, before we go any further, guys, do you think 5th edition has devolved into that yet? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think we're ankle deep. We're not quite at 3.5 level races of stone level of power creep. Like Monster Manual 27. We're not quite there yet. Yeah, it's not but... broken yet. But there's some combinations that from old stuff, multi-classing with new stuff, that's absolutely shattered. Yeah. No, I'm with you. So... I have some thoughts as well, and I agree with you guys mostly. I think that it's only as bad as the players want it to be. Because there's nothing, nothing that's come out so far that has made me say that previously published material is obsolete. No, there, I mean, there is some things. One example would be the blessed strike mechanic that Tasha's gives, which basically it gives your 8th level, 6th level cleric the effects of both potent spellcasting and divine strikes at the same time and replaces both of those abilities. Is it a variant option? It is a variant option. So this is an optional thing that you can add, but you don't have to? Yes. So but, in my head, that's not power creep. Uh, we'll get into it. We uh, will get into yeah. it. So it doesn't take long for new DMs to determine a handful of challenges that the basic design of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition presents. There are a handful of truths that every DM and player will learn quickly. They look like problems without easy solutions when you first run across them, but they all boil down to essentially the same thing, game design issues. The universal truths of D&D that I'm talking about are, one, designing engaging encounters is hard. Two, challenge ratings of monsters are unreliable. (laughs) Three, some playable classes scale faster or slower than others. Four, 
player creativity is difficult to design for, and five, high-level monsters and high-level player characters make for lopsided sessions. Can we agree on all those? Oh yeah, 100%. Yes, very yes. much. Now, every one of those topics is worthy of its own episode, note to future Adam, but they all tend to have the same outcome, which is Dungeon Master fiddling. I said fiddling, not diddling, Dan. Okay. I get worried whenever you start to dill. You should get worried when I start to fiddle, too. DMs almost always feel the need to adjust their sessions and encounters based around their party's needs. But they don't adjust it once. They adjust it again and again and again because players are chaotic by nature and the game is so multifaceted that it is nearly impossible to account for all things in all scenarios or to find a perfect rebalancing in a single answer. Now, I'm not just insulting players by calling them chaotic. So here's a good example of what I mean. Let's say that Dan... Hey, wait a minute. ...as a DM okay. notices that Terry's level 3 Clockwork Soul Sorcerer is operating without a spellcasting focus. But Megan's level 3 Cleric has a holy symbol, and Kyle's level 3 Druid has whatever mushroom he's casting out of as a druidic focus. Hopefully not that one. So Dan gets creative and gives Terry an NPC that presents his character with a family heirloom that can be used to cast spells from. Pretty straightforward, no harm, no foul, yet. It's a beautiful diamond pendant, crafted by a clan of noble dwarves that are tied to the plotline somehow, and it's covered in etchings and engravings that gnomish artisans, because it's Dan, have spent generations creating. That's fair, yeah. But Terry wants a spellcasting focus based around a phoenix feather, and has no use for this priceless artifact, so he gives it to Megan, Megan the Cleric. Megan the Cleric now has a diamond worth thousands of gold pieces, and a diamond like that is exactly what is needed to cast powerful resurrection magics at high level. Do you see how a simple act of rebalancing has blown up in the DM's face? Not only is the initial problem not resolved, but there is now a further imbalance in the group loot and spell components. This kind of shit happens all the time in D&D, and dungeon masters often struggle to keep up. But how do most DMs attack the problem? Well, they try to rebalance it again next session, and again the session after that, and again the session after that, and again the session after that, until the party is finally all balanced with plus three weapons and plus three armor and special mounts and three bodyguards each and a dragon wizard benefactor and 25,000 gold pieces apiece at level five. And the players are having so much fun shit-kicking every single CR5 enemy that the DM throws at them. But now, the hyper-realistic storyline is completely out the window because the players are busy telling fart jokes. You see, there are no more stakes because there is no more tension. At level 5, the party is damn near invincible. So the DM decides to throw a few harder enemies at the party. A stone giant here, a mind flayer there. But the NPCs are soaking up the attacks. The gear is cutting through the resistances, and the gold is making health potions easy to come by. So now the DM starts throttling back potion availability, goes extra hard on a couple of beloved NPCs, and adds a Thieves' Guild to the mix to endanger the party's precious swords and staves. So the players start to panic. They're level 6 now, and have never bothered to learn their meta magics, channel divinities, or wild shapes, because they never needed to rely on them when they could casually stroll through every dungeon. So now, they research during other players' turns, miss important information, and get totally blindsided by a couple of corrupted Hollyphants. The cleric dies on round three of combat, and the druid never bothered to get any healing spells because there used to be an abundance of health potions. The barbarian in the party goes down next, and then the druid starts making death saves, and now it's just Terry's clockwork soul sorcerer that's left, and he reaches for his component pouch, only to find that the thieves' guild stole it, and he still doesn't have an arcane focus. TPK, ladies and gentlemen. 
and no one is more shocked or disappointed than Dan the DM, who will never get to see the completion of the story that they were so excited about. And do you know where the whole thing went wrong? It's not the player's fault. It's not even the DM's fault. And it's not Wizards of the Coast's fault. The problem is power creep. Now, power creep is something we hear a lot about in discussions about video games. And it's a phrase that gets thrown at Wizards of the Coast a lot, especially in regards to Magic the Gathering and late edition books for D&D. But it's a factor in a lot of systems, especially anything with a linear form of progression. So what's the definition of it? Because not everyone who uses the phrase truly understands it. Power creep is when the increase in power of one aspect of the game naturally pushes the other aspects of the game to become more powerful too, or risk becoming irrelevant. If I add a plus two sword, all the other swords become useless in the eyes of that player. Every other weapon I give must be plus two or better in order to be considered. That is the definition of power creep. We have changed the baseline. So the idea here is that there is a standard baseline of power. And I know that this concept isn't easily defined in D&D, but it's still generally true. We all know what a level one party looks like, and we all have a general idea of how many kobolds is too many kobolds to fight. Because there are so many moving parts of D&D, generalized balance becomes more of a gut instinct or general idea and less of a codified system. But if you play enough D&D, and it doesn't take long, you start to understand that there is a vague set of power standards. Otherwise, why does everyone tend to skip or speed through levels one and two? We all instinctively know it's because you might as well be wearing a red shirt in a Star Trek show. It's far too deadly at low level, and we know that the power isn't there yet. So we're trying to become more powerful. And so now that we agree that there is a simple set of power standards, I'm just going to refer to it as the baseline, baseline power. But the baseline should generally increase over time. Maybe it's not always linear, and maybe it's not always at the same pace as the other classes and subclasses, but the trajectory of a player character's baseline power from levels 1 to 20 should look generally the same for all characters. Now, this is usually where the debate comes into play about clerics and wizards versus other spellcasters, or marshals versus spellcasters in general, or capstone abilities, multi-classing, power gaming, min-maxing, and optimizing. But for a second here, let's pretend that there is a basic common curve upwards in baseline power as far as game design goes. This is what most game progression design strives for. But let's assume that the game is popular. And so the company in question decides to release additional content because they're a company they need more money. Maybe it's DLC for an Xbox game, an expansion for World of Warcraft, or another source book for Pathfinder. It all has to be backward compatible with the original product, but it has to be flashier than just new skins, new lore, or new maps. We as consumers want new experiences too. That means new items, new enemies, new powers, and new characters. And we want to keep feeling powerful. So the company, whether or not it's Blizzard, Paizo, or Nintendo, decides they're going to entice the players to re-up their personal investment in the product by providing newer and more powerful experiences. So, the new Pokemon, character class, or chain flail is more powerful than everything else. So what do the players do? Well, they, they fucking use it, because it's more powerful than everything else. And it becomes the new standard, and it becomes a new baseline. And now everything that came before the secondary release becomes less desirable and is used less often. It becomes obsolete, and a new, more powerful baseline is established. But these newer, more powerful options have made the game easier. Now the fan base finds itself just grinding for XP, or to complete a whole set, or whatever the goal is. It's not a game anymore, it's a time sink. Or worse yet, it's a money sink. Or both. 
So the next update is new maps with harder enemies. And after that novelty wears off, the vocal minority of the players becomes frustrated and starts complaining. And so the third update has even more powerful options. And the baseline goes up and up and up until the first original game is left as a distant memory. And what this means is that it's entirely conceivable for a player and fan of a property to have a favorable deck of cards, complete set of magic items, or beloved character become useless. And when you get to that point, to the point that sentimentality is eclipsed, by sudden obsolescence, you're going to start to lose people. Well, so they just repackage it and sell it as classic. The, the, yeah, 15 years later with no changes. Yeah, no changes. That's yeah. the Except for the fantasy. changes where they want to sell you more of yeah. it. Yeah, Don't the, forget the, the loot store. Yeah, That's char- a change. Character boost. Yeah, and, character and boost. That's another and, change. But no changes. But no changes. World of Warcraft. Uh, good times. Yeah. But still. Oh, your point's perfectly yeah, clear. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, it's yeah. illustrated by the fact that. World of Warcraft yeah, even realized the shit had new stuff. their product yeah. had changed so much that people wanted the classic. So they were able to resell it in your subscription. So depending on how you do it, you're not technically paying for an additional game. That's if you play Maiden WoW as well. And not a lot of people are happy with Maiden WoW right now. No. For a variety of reasons. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Blizzard and World of Warcraft are an easy, very translucent example of what happens when power creep goes wrong right yes. do you have anything else any other examples any other examples i mean uh, 3.5 edition D. oh absolutely is, that went totally is, off the fucking rails yeah and and fourth edition had power creep out the gate which was weird i like, think that's not how power creep works well no it 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 is because within like three months of them releasing the base game they were releasing products that made the rogue and warden classes completely fucking useless or broken and no rogues were the most powerful you could break the game as a level three rogue just straight up and and there was no reason to play anything else because you were better spell like better spell caster in quotations as a rogue than you were a wizard honestly the one that i hear the most about is um hearthstone yep Hearthstone took a huge yeah. fucking power creep issue. Was it Zynga bought them and totally fucked them in the ear or something I, like that? I was never, I was never big on the tradable card game. No, me neither. Stuff, but, but it is, I, I rarely see a conversation online about power creep without this coming up. Because at one point, I think it was right after they got bought, the game was suddenly telling everybody everything that you own before now is garbage. Buy the new stuff only because it will trounce your shit. Mm-hmm. that's fucking huge and that's why i say these options these tasha variants i don't count that as power creep if you're going to unlock that shit for everyone at the table all of your players are just playing on easy mode right but it's not necessary no you're right yeah and so that's also why i think that while the tasha's subclasses are better now than Purple Dragonite and most of the shit in Skag was when that mm-hmm. came out. Because nobody plays a Battle Rager. But nobody played that when it came out. So it's not like it became obsolete. It was just shit from day one. Yeah. So poor product, not power creep. So I want to get into, for example, the definition of power imbalances. What it is, what it isn't. Okay. okay? So a power imbalance is... Well, that we're used to seeing, first of all, the one that I see the most in D&D is the attention to pillars, is the attention that the pillars receive from the designers and the players. That is a power imbalance. Combat, first and foremost. Yeah. And then it was exploration second, but it was boring as fuck. The rules are in the DMG, and they're not bad rules. They're just not as flashy as combat. Yeah. 
And then Critical Role came out and made role playing pillar number two. Because I don't know, I mean, Dan, you remember role playing in 3.5 and fourth edition was um, just an excuse for you to say, well, that's what my character would do. Yeah. And that was it. There was no actual characterization involved. And there have been people who have resisted the the change. Let's put it nicely. Yes. Yeah. A vocal group. Yeah. Well, I mean, Dave has started playing with our Sunday group, which is a fairly role-play heavy group. It is, yeah. Right? And uh, I was sitting down and talking to him about it because, you know, we we have this shared backstory. We're getting together to kind of build this character. Dave is so used to that 3.5 tactics heavy game. I mean, they were playing 3.5 up and you guys were playing 3.5 up to like a year ago, right? No, we were doing 5e. Over a year ago? I never did uh, 3.5 with oh, Dave. Uh, I, I Dave remember, has been doing 3.5. Dave's been doing 3.5 for a while. And like, I remember, I thought you were part of his group. No, uh, I, I, I remember I had a stack of 3.5 books that were just collecting dust in this room. And I'm like, hey, Dave, do you want to use them because you still have this thing? He's like, yes. And then within three months, he was in fifth edition. Yeah. But like sidebar, I've stolen those books and I'm using them now to do homebrew shit in fifth edition. Yeah, right. you guys are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but that's a big a big imbalance that we have is combat, right? And that's one of the reasons that all of these what is it minor magical items that are there that have come mm-hmm. out and whatnot that have nothing to do with combat are relatively ignored. Yeah. All of your overland travel rules. How much does it cost to buy a cart? Do you know off the top of your head? No. How much does it cost to buy a health potion? I think it's 50 gold for a cart. I think it's 50 gold for a cart, yeah. How much is it for a health potion? Oh, Oh, level of health uh, potion. Yeah. A baseline health potion is 25 gold. Yeah, but you know that because that has a direct impact upon combat. You don't have to stop and scratch your brain about that shit, right? You know inherently exactly what the breakdown of a finesse weapon or a light weapon is. But now let's talk about containers. Tell me, how much room is there inside a... Um, bag of holding. 50 liters. It's a 5 by 5 by 5 foot square. Just because it's come <laughs> up in my games recently, do I know this? I will add that caveat. But yeah, a bag of holding is not nearly as big as everybody no. seems to think. Like you're not putting the 20 foot statue in no. bag of holding, folks. Like I'm sorry. No. Or the corpse of the tiger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or several corpses of tigers. Which, yeah. I, which I have seen. Another major thing that um, is an imbalance at the table is the expected number of people in the party based on the game design it's supposed to be four players four players at the same level i thought fifth edition was five no it isn't okay that's just the edition number dan <laughs> i don't know where i saw it i mean it's always been four at one uh, four it could be from one of the level. modules I but think. there there was i do remember reading something and it's some published thing where this was balanced for a group of five of the same level. In the monster manual specifically the crs are for four yeah i think you, what you're thinking is um the tavern one that goes into undermount oh that's exactly where i, went. I believe yeah, that yeah, is I, for five because I, I ran white pine uh yeah. white pine white plume mountain. white plume mountain yeah, yeah i believe that's five player yeah so but how many people are actually at your table is it four Will you play it with three this week because one person or two people are away? Or are you having somebody sit in for a couple of sessions? I have very rarely seen a table run with four. I run three to six regularly. And with all of these online options that are available and whatnot, people are just running through Discord with, oh, we'll put eight people in the party. How do you how do you rebalance CR on that? They give you hints on what to do when you add more monsters. What do you do when you add more people? Yeah. How does that fuck the action economy? Which is the next thing, is the action economy imbalance, 
right? First of all, how many actions does each side get? That's what we're supposed to be looking at. But what order do they come in fucking matters. If the monsters all go first. those actions too. Yeah. And not just actions. By action, I'm like lowercase a, not not capital A actions. But like movement, bonus action, reaction, all that shit. Because, I mean, a Merolith alone will fuck your world. Yep. And there's only one of them. Yeah. Um, And honestly, how often do characters limit other people's actions? Oh, you're grappled? You're paralyzed this round? You're stunned? Oh, those fucking monks. (laughs) And how they like to throw the action economy out the goddamn window. All of these things are imbalances. And so when you start to add new features that affect all of these different aspects of the game, whether or not it is combat well, you get a plus two thing in combat, but you get a plus two to your persuasion skill. They're both plus two items. What's the problem? Well, one is far. Well, depending again, on the game for that one. That all, well, again, this I, I I think this is kind of the point you're getting toward uh, here, Adam. Yeah. But like, depending on the table you play, having a plus two survival item versus a plus two history item versus a plus two weapon, right? Like, which are you as a player going to want? You're going to want the weapon every time. Doesn't even matter if you're in a more socially bent game, right? Like, if you're playing basically L5R, which is that uh, game that Megan plays a lot, Legend of the Five Rings, which is like a samurai political intrigue, pure social, if you're getting in a fight, you fucked it up somehow, level of game. If you're playing that kind of D&D game, you're still going to choose that plus two weapon, right? Because it's a because it's D because you will fight four times this session. Yeah, right. It's just going to happen. So the other one that I want to mention is movements and speeds, and I don't just mean the monk goes an extra ten feet because fuck you, I'm a monk. I mean that motherfucker has a burrow speed. You guys are screwed. My favorite thing in the world is a burrow speed because what do you do as a player? Well, you, you can't you wait. Re- yeah, you wait. You hold an action and look at the ground between your feet and go, yeah. okay, okay, if, oh God, right? And that's it. Yeah. And when it's your initiative turn, you run towards the nearest raised platform and then stop. You don't dash because you're looking at the ground and holding your action again. Yeah. Right. Burrow speed destroys the action economy. Flying does to a lesser degree because anybody that's, a barbarian is not going to be a part of this conversation. Yeah, so everyone but the barbarian <laughs> doesn't have to worry about flying. The fighter's going over to the cleric and be like, do you really need the bow? Like, yeah. really, dear? dear? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, of course, you've got swim speed. And everything swimming is different and weird, right? Well, the second you bring the third dimension in, in either in either case, you start getting weird. Well, too. but even difficult terrain yep. is going to screw up your action economy because... You're going to have people that can only move 25 feet around that are now only moving, what? Seven and a half, something like Seven that? and a half, which if you're playing on a grid is five. So everybody that moves 30 is moving 15, but your dwarf is moving five. That hurts. Yeah. That hurts. That cleric, your dwarven cleric, is out of combat, speaking from experience, nine times out of ten. Mm. Which is okay. You want the cleric to show up afterwards and, and yeah. touch our, our cleric keeps on like botching on initiative rolls and Adam's like, it's okay. That's where you want to be. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's fair. And then, of course, there's the damage types and the immunities, resistances, and vulnerabilities. Now, we've done a Dragonborn episode not long ago. Mm-hmm. Did you dive into those? Oh, yeah. It's crazy imbalanced, hey, how everything is fire and, and poison resistant. Yeah. yeah. And like barely anything is, uh, what was it, lightning or thunder resistant? Mm-hmm. Thunder, force, psychic are just like, whatever you want. Do your thing. It's okay. Yep. 
right? Then again, not a lot of players have especially psychic damage. Yeah, it's, it's common. Uh, oh, no, no, no. You go to Tasha's and almost yeah, everything has was, a yes. source. All the psychic. new stuff has psychic damage, yeah. but anything much older than Tasha's, you're lucky to see it. But I, but I wonder if that was a response to Eberron, because half of the monsters in Eberron were doing psychic damage. Possibly. Probably. I, I think it's a little bit of them bringing that back in. I mean, veterans of Dungeons and Dragons will look at the time when a edition brings psionics into the game is usually when the game starts hitting its swan song stage. And that's when the power creep is crazy because you have a brand new mechanic, a new way of doing damage. Not just a new damage type, but you have different dice with different abilities to roll when it's psionics, traditionally. Fifth edition has thrown that shit out the window and just said, nope, it's a kind of damage. Psychic damage. We're, you're cool. Don't worry. We've got psychic spells. But we've always had that because friends and mind blank and all that shit has been here since day one. So it's just a new kind of damage that we're exploring now. However, does it make the other classes and subclasses obsolete? Mm-hmm. Like It might. Sometimes. It might. And as a DM, I got to be aware of that. As a DM, I need to know what I'm bringing to the table to help the barbarian mitigate that sometimes. Because I think there's only one way that one kind of barbarian can get resistance to psychic yep. damage. The Kalistar barbarian yeah, with bear totem. Yeah. yeah, you have to do it through race to get psychic resistance. But if you do that with the bear totem, you are resistant to everything. Outside of magic items. Outside of magic items. Yeah. So, what's ha- what everybody's listening to right here, I, I wanted you to on this episode because you're the min-maxers that I know. Okay, I was going to fight it. But no, yeah. it's true. You, you guys min max and you power game, and that is okay. Or at least you have the capability to we, do it. Yeah, I, we I've seen theory both. craft. Yeah. We theory I always craft. make yeah. sure it is a appropriate scenario to power game. Yeah. And usually when I'm throwing character ideas at Adam, it's partly because I'm really interested to see what his opinion yeah. is. Also partly because I don't have a lot of avenues to troll Adam, and that is one That's of them a really that good I treasure. One. Like, I yelled at him the other day, hey, I was thinking about taking a level of cleric, and I just saw him storm away. He's all like, you son of a bitch. So, yeah. Well, because you lied to me, you bitch. You said you're going 1 to 20 bard. Yeah, well, no, I'm going to go 1 to 20 bard. I'm we'll just see. trolling we'll you. See. We'll see. I'm trolling you now. I'm going to hold you to it at level 8. Okay. Well, in, in five years, when we get to level yeah. 20 in this <laughs> campaign, That's fair. we'll see how I am. So, okay, I got a question for you guys. Let's roll dice, sure. okay, finally. Let's... Let's answer this. When have you, as a DM or player, been aware of an imbalance that needed to be fixed in a game? Sure. Give a real-world example. Got a seven. Oh, James oh. and I rolling off of 14s. Uh, 18. 18 oh, and a natural, natural 20. 20. Look at that. Holy shit. Okay, James. Okay, the biggest imbalance I've ever been a part of in a game, we were doing, it was supposed to be a one-off, supposed to be a one-session, so we were all being clerics. We were being the A-team because yeah. it was funny. And the DM that was DMing for us was his first time DMing, and he had just also really gotten into Warhammer 40k. Oh, no. So he decides us to throw us against Warhammer 40k orcs. Oh, no. So it was a one-off, so whatever. We built our characters relatively strong, but they were not even strong enough as we fairly well min-maxed them within reason for a low-level campaign. It, it's a one-shot. It's a one-shot. You're so supposed to min-max. You're going to be overpowered, but you're min-maxing, so it should still be okay. We were not doing well, <laughs> and because he's a new DM and we knew a bunch of things in the game, we asked for some Basic legendary items, which he gave to us. So I was able to get my wisdom above 22. 
he was a my one of my buddies was able to get his AC over forty with a group of magic items and yeah shenanigans. Uh, shenanigans. Yeah, we built three separate tanks and we got to level twenty in a single battle because he decided to throw a zombie army at us as well. So I used um, the earthquake one that opens the earth and. All the zombies fell in, so we got a hundred thousand odd zombies worth of experience. This is why I don't use experience. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we knew it was broken from the beginning, so yeah. we just pushed our luck further and further. Thank God it was a one shot. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't. It turned into a couple months sessions. Yeah. Okay. Yikes. Combat doesn't get that intense without you taking yeah. a while. Yeah, Adam. Um, well, uh, I distinctly remember it was one of your first sessions with uh, with me in the recent years, Dan. Where I threw 78 giants yep. at a level 11 party. Ew. Yeah. What'd they do to you? Oh, uh, I had a whole plan here about there were tunnels in the city. And they had to defend the city walls as long as possible. While everybody else went down into the tunnels. And then the players were going to go down into the tunnels as well. And they were going to be uh, guerrilla warfare against the giants who were going to inhabit the city above. So they were going to get all sorts of long rests, all sorts of magic items were down in the tunnels. They'd be essentially playing whack-a-mole, but they're the moles. Yeah. And I was I was really looking forward to that. But it didn't occur to anybody to retreat. It never does. It never does. There's always one player who thinks it's a good idea, but they're usually playing a stupid player character and can't say anything. More times than not, I've seen a situation where I'm like, as a player, we should retreat. Yeah. As a character, I'm going to continue fighting. Yeah. Uh, uh, my current characters, I, I, in the three sessions we've played of this new campaign, every session at some point in time, I'm having to be the distraction. I'm a bard. It's my role. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. But like, there's definitely a part where I'm like, okay, you guys go do everything and I will be the distraction and wave my arms and try to get you guys to do shit because we should just be running, but we're not and you're fighting. So I'm going to try to save you. I have right? one DM that refuses to let me use intelligence as a dumb stat for my characters anymore. He's like, no, parties die too often when you're a stupid character. <laughs> That's Did, fair. Dan, what's your uh, imbalance example? Um, <sighs> The thing that I have seen more often than not as an imbalance um, is, is kind of design-based, and it is rooted in vision in D&D. When they started with 5th edition D&D, they decided to go with only two types of vision. You could either see in the dark or you couldn't. Past editions had three kinds. You could either see in the dark, you couldn't, or you're kind of good in both with low light vision. They don't have that in the game anymore. They have dim vision. Uh, there's dim light, but there is no dim light vision. Okay, yeah, that's true. Right? For for player characters. Which means your Dragonborns of the world, and I, I'm always on this hill, but the Dragonborns of the world don't get dark vision. Pisses me off. But every single new race that's coming out lately, short maybe like Tritons, which then they retcon and fixed, all get dark vision, but your old ones don't, right? So now if everything can see in the dark, why do torches and all those other things matter? Right. So I, I and like casting the spell light. Right. Like I, I'm I I would have loved to see them try to mitigate this early by having all three in and just keeping that. I don't know why they went away from it. Probably just due to simplicity. But that vision, how everything now is just getting dark vision to the point where. It's well, it's interesting because we have OK, we're recording this in August. We have a dragon book coming. Mm -hmm. I wonder. I oh, fucking have dark wonder. Vision. 
what they're going to do to Dark Vision in it. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping. I think they'll give more access to those things for to the darkness spell. I don't think there'll be a new vision change in the new stuff. And I agree with you. Too many things have Dark Vision. I understand how most monster races should. That's why I think Dragonborn should. Well, well it, it's it's not just that. Well, it's other senses, right? Yeah. Like I've uh, my son's hard of hearing, so mm-hmm. like I am abundantly aware of sound and how that applies to our day to day life, right? So having more in like the perception and investigation side of things. I mean, there are other ways we could go, but specifically vision. I'm seeing how everything is dark vision. It's it's negating the need for torches and shit right so let's talk for a second about some of the things that we've talked about which look like they're in balance but they're not necessarily power creep yet i i love james's example of fighting the the 40k orcs it wasn't balanced not power creep not by a damn sight you guys knew what was happening when you went we power creeped if anything getting a plus five shield plus five armor well you guys just power gamed Right? Because it didn't make the game design suddenly shift. There was not a new character that that had to show up and get gifted godly power. Well, the zombie army had to show up to stop us. <laughs> and did it? <laughs> no, we destroyed yeah. that as well. So, here's a couple of things that aren't power creeper imbalanced, but often get mistaken for it. Um, one of it is limiting the published materials. If your DM says no, you don't use anything at her tashes, that's not power creep or imbalance. That's trying to keep things at a baseline. Another one is pacing issues, which is when you give each character the spotlight. And we're going to focus on pacing in a future episode as well. Another one is tweaking stat blocks, right? People feel like this is an imbalance. You're doing power creep, but you are just reskinning or retweaking. And the last one, of course, is unfair plot moments where that NPC did not get a death save when normally they do. Or the big bad evil guy does get death saves, but no other monster ever has. Does that feel unfair when you come back from your successful raid of the dungeon to find your bar that you bought burned down and there was nothing you could do about it? That's not power creep. And that's not imbalanced. That might not even be bad storytelling if there is a reason for it and some consistency in the world. The consequence for the player's actions. Yeah, or... Their players have done something. Freaking plot hook so they can undo it later, right? Yeah. So let's grab our dice and roll initiative again because I want to. I grabbed this one, Dan. You can't have it again. Um, and I've got some questions. So let's roll. Four. Not 20. Seven. All right. Dan first. How do you feel about limiting officially published materials? I'm incredibly open to as long as it is officially published, you could have it at my table. However, I am... Definitely one of those people who is new to that train of thought. I have always just gone just core guys because and and it's not out of a fear of power creep. It's out of a laziness to not want to learn what the new powers are. Right. So like even still on on the game that I'm running, I get a player who is playing a swarm lord uh, ranger and every single session they come up with this new thing that they pulled out of Tasha's that surprises the hell out of me. Like their ranger getting druid craft and i'm like how the fuck do you have druid cantrips oh you could do that through tashes now okay cool right but like it, it's stuff like that that keeps on popping up and that group is teaching me to be more open to it because it's not power creep it's just different avenues for the game to evolve 
but I I have for years been the guys like just core guys. I I don't want I don't want to worry about everybody playing Leonin or Fearbolgs, right? Just play a human or a dwarf, right? But it. What about you? Uh, for the most part, I'm fine with anything unless story reasons. Yeah, I, look, that's a good point. No, no gnomes because we had a blood plague go through. Yeah, right in my yeah. world. No you're, Kenku either for that. Reason. You're in Ravnica. No one can play a dwarf. Like Sorry. the next game I run, yeah. I'm 100 percent knocking out Tabaxi just because everyone loves playing Tabaxi. That's because they're broken as shit. Yes, they're super broken. Yeah, especially as a Tabaxi rogue or a Tabaxi monk. Yeah. Are you cutting them out because everybody else loves them and you want to see a variety at the table, or are you cutting them out because who wants to DM against that shit? I'm cutting out of spite. Okay. Yeah. Well, neither <laughs> of the two. I'll DM against it, and I everyone can play it, but I would rather just them not. Tabaxi are an example of power creep. For sure they are. Right? You think so? Oh, yes. Yes. They're, you can they're double racial... your movement speed. Every turn. Every turn. And that's double your movement speed. So if you are a monk that has gotten your movement up to 45 plus around, now you have, what, 90 plus your bonus action to dash on top of your yeah. free action to double your movement speed. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like Tabaxi. I like their presence in the game. I just think that there needed to be a limitation on that ability of theirs. It shouldn't be a... Yeah, that ability should have had to... You had to either stop dead, like you don't get a movement round the next round. So you can triple your movement essentially for one run, but then but after that you have to stand still for one whole round. But you see, I don't consider that power creep. I consider that poor game design. Because people are playing other things beyond tabaxi. At least on my tables. No. I've at never my tables, seen... it is a majority of tabaxi. You're either a tabaxi or you're a variant human. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, variant human is a pain in my ass. Yeah. I actually put a fucking limit on Megan. I called her out about playing a blonde heroic um, freaking... With a four-letter K name. With a four-letter oh. K name, yeah. <laughs> Every variant t- human. Is it? Is it Cora? Is it Kira? Is it... Her new character's Kaya, but it was the Q, so it's different. Oh, good job, good Megan. job. Yeah, we'll break her yet. <laughs> um, but honestly, if it is published, bring it to the table. I have no problem yeah. with it whatsoever because that's what the game is. That's just how the game goes now, right? Nobody wants to play Diablo 2 without the expansion pack. No, nobody wants to play Diablo 2 anyway anymore. But well, the moment that expansion came out way back in the day... I wouldn't mind playing some Diablo 2 right now, to be honest. Uh, like you're saying, no one wants to do it. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I thought about sure, Diablo 2 in a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys go back to Act 3, man, with all the little fetishes running around. Uh, you poison darts from across the fucking room. I was so mad. Anyway, not the point. Not the point. The point is, when new shit comes out, you want to play with it. Yeah. My players are going to be happiest when they're playing with it. And that's... Like, you look at my table. I've got a freaking... Let me go around. I've got a Loxodon, a Shifter, a Furbolg, and a Leonin beside my Tiefling and my Half-Elf, right? Like, yeah. people wanted to play with that. And I've got a Twilight Cleric in the mix, right? If I'd said no, the Loxodon Cleric would be a radically different character that they may not be having fun with. So let's do that. I have no problem as long as it makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, like Dan wanted to play a Gnome after there was a Gnomish Blood Plague. I said, great, make it make sense. Tell me how and why. And you did. So you did. Mm-hmm. Right? So as long as there's some sort of internal consistency, I'm fine And then fine that was it. a major plot point. It's like everyone was yeah. like, there's a gnome. Yeah. Th- those don't exist anymore. Why, why is this one around? And suddenly your rogue was not able to blend in so mm-hmm. well. So would you, as a DM, Dan, tweak stat blocks before a session 
before a session in the name of rebalancing. On play for players or for monsters? No, for monsters to fight. As a DM, are you retweaking the stats and abilities of a monster before the session starts? A hundred. Well, I'm literally 100% for you. I don't know why I asked. That is what you do. A hundred percent of the time, right? Like, have you ever cracked a monster manual? Yes. When? All the time. When? Literally last week. When he's looking to upscale to the track. No, so. I, I've I've got I've yeah. got a young blue uh young uh blue dragon that my party is interacting heavily with right now. So like I needed for that. They fought a bunch of lizard folk. Needed it for that. I run it, but like I do take a little bit of creative justice with it. Not creative justice, that's creative license. License. Creative that's license. The, that's yeah. the word. Right? So like if I think that my lizard folk should have a spit attack because hey, that would be fun. Yeah, I'm going to give them a fucking spit attack. I don't give a shit, right? Even if it's before a session, eh, like, yeah, I will. 100% I will, right? James, do you, would you retweak monsters? I would add more monsters into the mix of different varieties. So let's say they're fighting, as you said, lizard folk. Well, I would add in some enslaved kobolds with them. So something, or enslaved goblins. Like something else that is much lower that the party more than likely can take care of. But Throw it's a just single giant crocodile in the mix. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that, just to make it a bit harder. And I'd make the, especially in that scenario, the monsters a bit more intelligent. Whether I tweak their stat or not, but they have these essentially pets they control. Yeah. So they would know what to do with them. It wouldn't be them just running around doing their own thing. Be like, oh, the sorcerer at the very back, attack him. And when he's down, attack him again. One of my favorite quotes from World of Warcraft is uh, one of the mobs in Upper Black Rock Spire, since you play World of Warcraft, I could be a nerd about it, would always say as part of his like combat dialogue, kill the one in the dress because the priests and the mages were always the ones that were either doing the most damage or doing all the healing. And they wore cloth, which were always dresses. Yep. So, yeah, uh, look, kill the one in the dress. That's how I run it. If I can be honest... I retweak, uh, I look at how many combats that I have, and I look at how many players that I have. If I have six players, every sixth combat is going to have something radically different. So it will not operate the same way the monster manual says. But it might just be tactics. Or this one is aquatic now. Like, it could just be that level of of difference, but I do mix it up semi-frequently. Otherwise, the only thing I play with is uh, maximum hit points and strategy. But as we've said a thousand times in this podcast, all you need is different terrain and some brand new combat. Yeah. So, Dan, how do you feel about using plot points to rebalance the game? Like, for example, having a Thieves' Guild steal the overpowered magic belt in the middle of the night, despite every precaution that the player took. If the player is taking a bunch of precautions and being aware about it and in-game telling me about all the plans, I'm not going to do it. Right? Just because it, like, I'm, I'm not just gonna be like, all oh, your stuff is pointless. All these, all these plans you did was pointless. Like, I'm gonna give them a chance to not have their stuff taken away. But I am not above using plot points to kind of help rebalance things. Right? I've done it before. I'll do it again. You kind of have to, in my opinion, as a DM. Right? If you've given an item where you have a hourglass, and whenever this thing is draining, they have advantage or all social checks. We've had this item. All social checks just succeed. Well, then I'm going to do something along the line. If this thing is, if the players are being really smart with it, give it to them for a while, but eventually it will, something will happen with that. It'll either fail or it'll break or something, right? That Just because you've just 
and you've said this on the podcast even, like that item specifically... Was fucking broken. It was broken and destroyed a pillar of the game. So you needed to do something about it. Yep. Right? And you did. So um, it, I get fast and loose with my magic items with my parties. I do. And my gold. And you've, you've... I've said, like, here's all the list I gave my party. And you're like, what level are they? And I'm like, four. <laughs> like, Why did you just give them plus one full plate at level four? Hit them harder. Right? There are times where I then have to rebalance. And I, I will either use plot points or monsters to fix and my that, issues. Because you don't want to see that power creep. Yeah. Right? And so you have to cut them off at the knees so that the, the original height again. And and I will be the first to admit, usually it's just because I'm like, this would be really cool to see. And I'm like, oh, that was really cool, but way too powerful. I did not think this. Do thing. you find it pisses off your players? Oh, 100%. Uh, I'm thankful you don't have Brad on this episode. Would you recommend that others do that, Dan? No. Okay. James? Uh, well, no, okay. Actually, I would recommend to do it, but do it wisely. Don't do it adversarially, right? Um, there is a correct way to use plot points and monster tweaks to fix power creep issues because it will just happen, right? It's very hard to avoid giving an item out. And the party's creativity in some way, shape, or form makes that an unbalanced item, right? That will happen. And as DMs, we need to support that, but there comes a point where we need to pull back the reins a bit, right? So do it wisely. Don't just be fast on this with it. I'm on the same kind of train as Dan there for if the players are taking precautions, you're removing player agency if you just take their items. Like if yep. they're laying inside the tiny hut with a uh, two alarms running around it from both of the casters and yet things still get stolen... Unless you're finding a way in and out of bags of holding, which is a new monster I actually saw posted online the other day that does that. The Bagman. Fascinating. But unless you're doing something like that, you're removing player agency. So there has to be another way to get rid of it or hit them with higher, more powerful monsters. Or if they want, let them have that level. If you've got powerful enough items to consider you from your 9 to 10, cool. Have your 10, but now 10 level monsters, 11 level monsters are coming for you. Make it that simple. Make harder things hunt for them because of these items. So instead yeah. of just stealing it in the night, you now have a minor army right up at your camp waiting for you to wake up saying, hand it over or fight. And that that's what I do is I make it the player's choice to give it up, right? You have to sacrifice whatever the thing is in order to move on to the next thing to do, right? There has to be clearly the idea that we can go back to get our... Look, we chased that one goblin away from our camp, and he got away, and then we hunted him down, and it's fine, but we left all of our shit back there, and we can see the hobgoblins going through our shit, and there's 25 of them. Do we go back for our stuff, and we know we're going to lose, or do we try to go get some of it back later? Dan, you're going through this right now with your group. Yeah. You woke up at the beginning of level one. I gave them all shopping lists. James, I'm funny like this. I gave them all shopping lists of things that they could buy, special magic items, unique things with plot hooks for their characters. They all sat down and hummed and hawed over it and chose six players, all really excited about it. Woke up at the beginning of session one. You wake up. You don't know where you are. You've been knocked unconscious and all your shit's gone. And everyone was like, what? Yeah. Three sessions later, we're, we're operating with like rusty swords we found and like destroyed armor that we found. Sounds like an Adam campaign. But the quest is about to go yeah. find the items, right? So I wanted there to be emotional investment. So there was a little bit of plot kerfuckery on that. I will 100% get in on that. But when it comes to magic items being too powerful, I just give charges. There are just a limited number of them. I don't give you a wand of cure wounds. I give you a wand of cure wounds 
with two charges left. And it is not rechargeable. There it is. Or you can recharge it, go nuts. But for everything that you put into that, it costs you a spell slot to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just going to throw a bunch of shit at you every time you want to burn a bunch of spell slots, right? Those six to eight encounters a day that they recommend, I live and die by that. I will mess with my players with that and burn through resources. Okay, so now comes the time in every single episode where we break to what we like to call a commercial, um, but it's really just us pimping our own shit and it makes Dan very uncomfortable to have to eat shit like this uh, when we ask you guys to do stuff for us. But we love you and we love doing this podcast, but it is not freaking cheap. And I'm going to break the fourth wall and I'm going to pull it back and I'm going to say, guys, we could use the help. We are a struggling little podcast doing our own thing and it comes entirely out of uh, our pockets. And we got to buy books to review them and to have be up to date on the regular stuff. We have to subscribe to D&D Beyond and of course there's the web hosting and, and paying Podbean and, and everything else. So we're asking, please, if you can find it in your hearts to kick a little bit in our direction. We are doing everything in our power to release as many different shows and episodes as we can. But it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of love, and a lot of money. And to be completely honest, we have the setup here that we've had for about a year and a half now. And and if we could all get better mics, that this would be, would be a better show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, scripts and jokes out the window, guys. This is a bit of a passion project. And we don't have a Kickstarter. We don't have a Patreon. We do have a donate button on the website. And we do have a store with, you know, we're selling a lot of stickers these days. Which we are. Is, yeah. Which is interesting. But they're only a buck fifty a piece. So it only goes so far. <laughs> and we only get a cut of that. So, As a balding man, buy more hats. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, please and thank you for whatever you can kick our way. If you don't, just know that your clicks and your listens feed our our love and our passion as well. So thank you for everything that you do, even just by showing up and listening. Uh, if you have any more that you can throw our way, we would be more than more than grateful. Okay, so game design is not just based on what Wizards of the Coast do. A lot of the stuff that we've been talking about at this point has been us as DMs, how we design our games. So let's look at actually one of the biggest tools that um, Wizards of the Coast has brought to the table, and that is bounded accuracy. This changed D&D mm -hmm. fundamentally and thoroughly all the way through from previous editions. And it is the one big argument that I have about why I will never play a Pathfinder game is because I love bounded accuracy. It gives me a system to work within. Instead of just watching shit fly off the hook, I found in 3.5, I was fighting power creep every single encounter. So what is bounded accuracy? Well, it's the idea that there's flat math is basically what it comes down to. The idea that what they wanted to do is make it so that all of the cheap, shitty mob monsters at low level would still be a threat at high level if you had enough of them, right? So there were no more AC-41 that you could get on a player because no goblin will ever be able to hit you and you should not be invincible to a horde of a million goblins, no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. So here's what they gave us. The maximum ability score is 20. The maximum ability score modifier is plus five and the maximum proficiency bonus is plus six. That means that when attacking, the highest number you can ever get is 30. That's plus 5 from your ability, plus 6 from your proficiency, and then 19 on the die. That's 5 plus 6 is 11, plus 9, we got a, a plus 19, we get up to 30. 
a 20 is a crit, so it's going to work even if you don't meet the AC requirements. So it doesn't really count in, in this scenario. And for combat, yeah. And, for and combat. There are exceptions to these rules. Uh, like max level barbarians can have a higher strength and, There's and stuff like that. There's ways to there, break it, but you need to know what you're doing. But by and large, this is the standard that Watsi has put in. Yes, this is the bounded accuracy. Here's the flat math. Yeah. If you break it, it's the one thing that you are breaking in the game because you put all of your attention into doing this one thing to become literally slightly stronger than the next at level 20 a plus five or a plus six does not fucking matter i've had it matter for saves wisdom saves with a bonus to wisdom and you're getting all your bonus stuff on top it's yeah but well it's, it's not it. it's not nearly as large a problem in 5e as it was oh, yeah. in 3.4 well right? And I'm specifically only speaking about attacks right now because I wanted to talk about armor class. Yeah. The maximum armor class is 30. Hard stop. Obviously, this means that a high-level character with an optimum attack and a lucky roll can hit the highest AC because the most you can get is 30. So if the best AC out there is 30, you have got to be rolling a 19. You have a 10% chance of hitting, even with all of your other shit maxed out. So... Let's take a look at what the actual breakdown is according to the rules as written. AC5 is considered very easy and is reserved almost exclusively for hitting fungi. There's also a portrait in one of the modules and an ooze the size of a house with an AC of 5. And it just means you're not going to miss. Yeah. Right? Even with your plus 2 modifier at level 1, and you should not be attacking with less than a plus 2 in your modifier, your attack modifier, right? So even if you roll a 1... Assuming you're not rolling with critical fails, you will hit. Mm -hmm. AC 10 is easy and is where most humanoids and beasts sit naturally in and around 10. Most creatures with an AC of 10 are NPCs or creatures with a challenge rating of 0. AC 15 is medium difficulty. A level 1 character has a plus 2 proficiency modifier and probably has a plus 3 in their main attack stat. So they need to roll a 10 or higher. That's a 55% chance of success at level one to hit. But remember, just because you have a good chance to hit a dire troll at level one does not mean you should hit a dire troll at level one. Dave. <laughs> that, yeah, just because he could hit the gelatinous cube with an AC of six does not mean he should have done that. Yeah. AC 20 is considered hard to land a blow against. Death Knights, Dragon Turtles, Demoliches, and Orcus himself all have an AC of 20. That means that you need to be level 10 and max out your main ability modifier in order to have the same chances to hit one of these guys as a level 1 character has to hit a giant crab or a bullywug. You see how this is keeping everything flat. Mm -hmm. Level 20 seems, or uh, AC 20 seems low for Orcus, doesn't it? Very. The way that they counteract this in 5th edition is by giving shit tons of hit points. Mm. And by minimizing the damage output for most characters. It, it's also, uh, they have more resistance, resistances play more of a, an effect here as well. Oh, absolutely. There are other ways around it, but the math is flat. Even a goblin can get lucky enough to hit Orcus. Because in theory, I, and I, I think about um, at Helm's Deep, there's the one elderly civilian who's holding the bow and he accidentally lets it fly and it murders a fucking orc warrior, an orc high, right there in front of him and it falls down dead. And that starts the battle. 
Well, yeah, man. A single arrow to the eye will do that sometimes. Yeah. You're going to hit, right? Whether or not it will kill a demigod is another factor. But you'll hit. AC-25 is considered very hard to hit. And it is reserved for only three creatures in 5th edition. Rak Tokhesh, which is the fiendish overlord and big bad evil guy in Eberron. Tiamat herself and the motherfucking Tarrasque have yeah. an AC-25. And technically an AC of 30 is possible to achieve, but at this point we're talking about god-tier creatures, so it's unlikely we'll ever see this. I mean, neither Tiamat nor Oriel have an AC this high, and they're literally gods, so I don't know what to tell you on that. Yeah. For players, you of course start with a base AC of 10, and the game is designed to have you max out around 20 by using full plate armor and a shield. Unless you're getting up to some magical or heroic or min-maxing bullshit. Yeah. It's the guys who are like, I'm going to play that Warforged. Warforged cleric, yeah. plus five shield, but not armor. You can't have magic armor because yeah. you need the bonus from your blessing of the forge. Well, it's okay, so you just go adamantite uh, plate. Yeah, you go adamantite plate to get rid of yeah. the crits. Then you have your plus one on the armor from your blessing of the forge. You have yeah. a plus one on yourself from the blessing of like fire or something, something like that. Like that. So, now let's look at bounded accuracy for skill checks and saves. You were talking about that mm -hmm. earlier, right? Now, when it comes to bounded accuracy for ability checks, the breakdown is roughly the same. 5 is very easy, 10 is easy, 15 is medium, so on and so forth. But, then we, then we run into the rogue, the bard, and magic. And suddenly, expertise, bardic inspiration, bless, and other additional numeric increases come into play. And you... Find yourself looking down the barrel of a level 1 rogue with an 18 in dex, plus 2 from her racial bonus, for an ability modifier of plus 5. Her proficiency modifier is plus 2, and she has expertise in stealth, so that's now a plus 4, and the modifier is a plus 9. The bard in the party dropped a d6 inspiration die on them, the cleric gave them a d4 bless, and now they're sneaking along with 3 lucky rolls that amount to a total of 39 for this stealth check, with no way to roll less than 10 at motherfucking first level. I think this literally happened this past week. It did. Yeah. Yeah. So, bounded accuracy is really meant for combat. Remember how the different pillars do not get the same weight of game design. Exploration and social roles give you the ability to get monster numbers one way or the other. Exploration, a lot of times, is when these saves come into play... Or these mind control, wisdom, charisma saves that you hit as well. I bring this up simply to prove that bounded accuracy can easily be manipulated when it comes to skill checks. Yeah. And DMs should be aware of this. Because you may find yourself in a situation where everything below a 12 is considered very easy. And you may feel the need to adjust the difficulty class of challenges in the book. But remember, that's a slippery slope that is going to lead to power creep. And it's going to hurt feelings. If someone decided that they wanted to get plus nine into stealth at level one, they built their character around that. They're not doing massive outputs of damage or learning a shit ton of spells or becoming super charismatic to be able to run social encounters. This is what they want to do. Mm -hmm. If you suddenly make that plus nine act like a plus three, you've cheated out a player. I feel like this is a session zero conversation now. It very much is. Because you need to decide if you're playing superheroes or barely surviving. Yeah. Because I've been in games where DMs haven't stated that, but the implied premise was superheroes. And one or two players built their characters as 
Gods well, Amongst Men. Well, some built, most of us built a Gods Amongst Men, which was the intended point of the game, but two or three people wanted to do their role-play heavy character. Oh, yeah. So they were complaining and bitching the whole time because they weren't able to do damage. They weren't as socially inept as everyone else. Yeah. Well, in session zero that you didn't come to, we discussed, let's build our characters powerful. The game was built to fight powerful characters. So we spent a lot of resources keeping them alive. That's a major factor. It really is. Another one of the pieces of math, though, that I want to bring up is the idea of the advantage versus disadvantage a mechanic that FitEd brought to tabletop gaming, as far as I'm aware. They're, the fact that they call it advantage and disadvantage. Yeah. We actually see something very similar to that in Call of Cthulhu yeah. as well. But this is so hard-baked into the mechanics... Um, as well as the powers that people have. And we've spoken before about how important it is, um, but it seems like such a strange mechanic to try and plan around as a DM, especially because you don't know what bizarre fucking circumstances James is going to come up with this fucking session. So rolling two dice and choosing either the higher or lower value makes the game faster, more streamlined, and easier to run. But I just want to state again that probability is complicated and breaking down math in an audio format is difficult, so we're, we're just going to treat it like it's a plus four or a negative four. Advantage gives you, generally speaking, with average rolls, a plus four. The closer you get to a rolling a one or a 20, it changes. Yeah, we can, we can talk about probability factors in another time. <laughs> yes. Like, Whole so, episode of probability. Yeah. So just when planning your homebrew ACs and DCs, assume that advantage operates like a plus four, Disadvantage operates like a minus four, and you'll be close enough to the target to have a decent encounter one way or the other. So that's another way that you can look at rebalancing. Just add advantage or disadvantage to something. Another thing that Wizards bring to the table is CR levels. Now, they lean pretty heavily on CR ratings for most of the modules, but there are clearly some famous spots. Death House is one of them, where it is wildly, quote-unquote, imbalanced. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I disagree. I think that retreating is always an option. Not in fifth ed. The way the game's designed, you're designed to be a god. You're designed to not be able to die as soon as you hit level four. Yep. And most people take that literally and the game encourages it. But when you're in Death House, you're level one or two. Yeah. Right? So you are squishy as fuck and they give you some nasty things to fight. I want to say there's a Helmed Horror in there, but I might be misremembering that. I, I don't know off the top of my head. But I do know of things like if you've listened to the Mind Flayer episode, the Arcanist or whatever it is, is a CR9 and that thing should be an Eight. 11 at yeah. least. Yeah. So anyway, for those of you that are not aware, you should be by now if you're listening to the podcast. The CR indicates what level an average adventuring party with no magic items should be uh, in order to defeat the particular creature listed. Um, Now, the key word here is should, as Dan just pointed out. Um, And, I mean, challenge ratings are fickle, at the very least, right? So, one thing that we want to bring up, no such thing as an average adventuring party. Everyone is radically different, and you cannot fucking plan in a book how many rogues, clerics, barbarians... Or wizards will be in any given party. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Curse of Strahd's a vastly different game if you're a party of four clerics. Oh, Compared God. to if you're a party of... Four fighters? Four fighters. Or four sorry bards. for Strahd if you're four a, a par- clerics. party of four bards walk into, like, deep, dark, oppressive uh, ra- uh, Ravenloft. 
Another thing to remember is that environment and terrain can make or break an encounter. And should. And should. Frankly, it absolutely should. Um, but this is going to mean that CR is very different. The dragon turtle, for example. How many times do we say in the aquatic episodes, if you are near water, this is three times harder than it says it is. Mm-hmm. Most design decisions are based around the idea that there is an adventuring day of six to eight encounters. I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but... There's no indication of how fresh or bedraggled a party may be when facing off against a monster. It's a fuck of a lot different to go up against a beholder for your first encounter of the day as opposed to your eighth. So one of the other things to keep in mind, too, is do you guys ever look at Cobalt Fight Club as a a resource online? Yep. The idea is that you can kind of build your encounter and you can choose whether or not it's going to be easy, medium, hard, or deadly. Yep. Um, There is no way to naturally do that. In the monster manual, and considering that your players are not supposed to have magic items, there is no way to take magic items into account when coming up with the actual CR of an encounter. These are all design things that people have to think about all of the time. And now now let's talk about the actual characters themselves. Customization makes for a number of different options for character builds. Without getting into feats, just looking at the 105 or so races and sub-races, the roughly 110 subclasses, and the 110 backgrounds, if you include the Baldur's Gate variants and separate Eberron houses, that's over 1.27 million different characters that can be built, not including backstories, feats, or anything else. And we didn't even get into the variables of the Ravenloft sub-races, the customization rules that Tasha's brings to the table, or the free-for-all that backgrounds are supposed to be by default. Yeah. There's a fuck-ton of options, how can they tell me that a level four party should go up against this kind of creature? Uh, I mean, With so many variables at play. True, but when you have the bounded accuracy system as a springboard, as a baseline, but, yes, it's easier to kind of assume here's where your party will roughly be at. But it gets more and more difficult the later in the game you get. CR4, sure, I can do that. CR14, CR, yeah. it's a fuck of a lot more difficult because at that point, how many magic items, how many boons, because your players get fucking bored. You have to give them rewards, and those rewards need to mean something. And and often need to be more than purely mechanical as well, right? But, yep. So all of these factors that Wizards of the Coast brings us amounts to be more guidelines and rule sets, more rulings than rules, and more generalities than specifics when it comes to balance. And if something is going to be imbalanced, then power creep is lurking somewhere around the corner. Yeah. Dungeon masters, though, are game designers, too. Wizards of the Coast gives you the system and maybe even the story if you're playing out of a module, but they don't know the players around the table, the size of the table, the expectations of the people involved, or how these people define the idea of fun. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, you're going to fight Warhammer 40k orcs, and then I'm going to throw an army. Man, I'm out. I did that shit in 3.5. That's not fun for me. But I totally get why Dave would have a fucking rage boner for that shit. Like, everybody would have fun at my table doing that. God, can you imagine Casey fucking playing that? She would would love just the random shit. Anyway, that to me is boring. I think Charlie would hate it. But Oh, 100% Charlie would hate it, yeah. But different variations on fun really matters to your game design. So, when a DM is doing their game design... There's some basic ideas that they've got to wrap their brain around. And one of them is party management, right? Knowing your players' abilities. I am going to start doing this because it makes for more dynamic and interesting encounters. I'm going to start asking at every level to get a pitcher 
of the spell list and the first page of the character sheet. I just want to know what your what your skills are. Definitely yep. have to ask that every session from half the casters because their spell list changes. The, yes, but I want to know where their first thoughts mm. are going to be. If if hey, I'm at I just got to level five. I just got revivify. Okay, he wants to use revivify. I'm gonna kill somebody next round, right? Like. <laughs> Just to let them do it, and it'll be some sort of explosion thing that happens. Not a monster, maybe, but an environmental effect that's a one-off. Yeah. Right? To let them use this really cool new spell that they got. It also prevents that moment of you doing something like that and being like, don't you guys have Revivify? And all your players going, no, man. Like, no. Exactly. Um, another thing is uh, shining the spotlight on different pillars, abilities, characters, or skills or skill sets. Right? Depending on what's going on in this moment. If you are stuck in combat round after round after round, the bard will be an imbalanced player. Look, we know the difference between a short rest and a long rest when it comes to warlocks, right? One of them is really useful and one of them, eh, not so much. Yeah. Right? And we see this over and over again with, like you said, depending on some of the classes, they can swap up their... Clerics can do whatever the fuck they want, right? Wizards too, but sorcerers? Sorcerers get one switch every level. It's the most painful thing. Same with bards. And you can only switch in that level. So if you have a level three spell, you can pick a new level three spell, but you can't go up to four or down to two. Which means you've got to really know what your players are working with. Yeah. And you need to shine the spotlight on the things that they've chosen to do. Right? I always see stories online of barbarians that are sitting there twiddling their thumbs and deciding to hit things because they got bored. That's on the DM. Yeah. Don't let your barbarians get bored. Give them shit to do. Now, another thing that a DM brings to the table is the ability to adjust on the fly. This is a Dan thing. Yeah. You know what? He only has half as many hit points as combat's taking too long. Here we go. On to the next thing. We we have an episode on pacing coming. We'll hit that then. Um, but there's also incomparables. And these are the main thing that I really wanted to touch on because I don't think most people understand them. Uh, or maybe they have a vague idea of them. But an incomparable is a non-numeric item or advancement um, in the game or the character. And it has a non-numeric relationship between other items or skills or abilities or whatever it is that, that you're adding to it. For example, Dan is going to get a magic item that gives him plus two to a persuasion check. But James is going to get a persuasion check does nothing for you. You are a rogue. You don't need persuasion checks. You want a plus one to stealth, but Dan's is going to recharge on a short rest, and yours is going to recharge on a, on uh, every minute. So you can use it once in a counter, right? I will throw out different non-comparable things, right? So that they're going to hit differently. This is how you balance a game. I do this all the time. When I see that there's one character who has so many magic items that have made the because Dan, you you and Megan fucking hoard magic items. And I ha, and I I lose track of what you have. Yeah. That's okay, so do I. This is this is how <laughs> this is how there was that hourglass that ended up totally fucking up my giants, right? I gave 78 giants that were gonna go fight this city. They pulled out an hourglass says, hey, we're gonna win every every social encounter ever. Here we go, we're gonna role play. And they did. What are we gonna do? I forgot they fucking had that thing. I handed that out 10 sessions ago. They were supposed to use it somewhere else. They didn't. I went, oh, well. And now here it is. And, like, I didn't manage their abilities and their skill sets. And now they've totally fucked up the next three sessions of my my campaign. 
And there's this really cool guerrilla warfare thing that we're not going to get to do now. But are they having fun? I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Was that more powerful than a plus one item? Yeah. Yeah, totally. But how many people would have picked up the plus one item first? Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, so I'd 100% picked up the thing that could do... Um... The social. You're, you're a crafty motherfucker, though, Jay. Do you know yeah. how game-breaking that is? Let, let's put it this way. Terry was the one. Oh, yeah, no. Who had got plus that one. social item. Yeah, plus, no. You take a plus zero item. <laughs> um, Shiny sword, good enough. <laughs> so, how do you guys handle players who get frustrated or bored with the progression of the game? Are we rolling? Yeah. I got an 11. I was on a 5, now I'm a 3. 8. Thanks, James. Um, no problem. I, other than the usual be attentive... As a DM. Other than that. Uh, This is not bored at the table because someone else's turn is taking too long. But bored with the progression of the character. Yeah. We're not powerful enough fast enough. Um, I mean, talk to the player. Meta is the answer, isn't it? Yeah. Meta is the answer on this one. Like, ask your players, hey, how are we feeling? Where are we going? Like, um, we do a thing at the end of all of our sessions, Adam, that I think is a great thing that we do. Which is where you want to do a bit of a, like recap with us with how we're feeling and you do this in a really crafty way by us kind of giving each other either inspiration dice or advantage on that role in the future for this one cool thing we did right but it has a double uh purpose one we get a cool bonus and get rewarded for doing a cool thing right and you as the dm don't have to come up with an item to throw at us to give us that reward other players around the table are giving it we make makes us feel good but also really cements into us as players um, and you as a DM, the things that the people around the table are paying attention to. And then you as the DM could be like, oh, they're really paying attention to the fact that Dan pulled out a guitar and played. Okay, I now know how to, you know, rework the campaign so that these things that they're paying attention to and are drawing out can be highlighted again, right? That's how I uh, address this is by doing a little very small one use inspiration or recap thing at the end of this uh, session and then paying attention. That's all you got to do. James. Yeah. Very much on the pay attention and talk to your players. If all your whole party is bored with the progression and not happy with it, especially if you're low levels, cause we all hate playing the two, three, four. No, I personally hate it. Oh, it's, I it's hate my being preferred. Low power. It's I, my preferred. I, I, I want to run a campaign where everyone starts at level six and never levels. I'd be okay with that. Yeah, and I and play for six years. Let let's do it. That's, yeah, sounds yeah. Like a I could do that, but that's level six. That's when you have okay, some you don't of your do powers. That at level three. Or, or I like couldn't do that level, level three. once a year. Yeah, something long breaks in between because it took you three hundred sixty five days of experience to level. Yeah, but I also feel like you should level up for your skill checks. But that's a different story. <laughs> that's a different. But anyways, story. as I was saying, like if your whole party is uh, bored with the low level campaign. Take a fade into black for two months, and they are now two or three. No new magic weapons, no new items, but what you have on your back, but now you're two levels higher. So you get your first feat and your first this, so you can do more things with your character. Because there's several classes that just are boring at low level. Yeah. Until you hit two, three, four, five, you start to get into stride. Well, that third level subclass usually injects so much flavor into the class that any sort of like, uh, lack of better term, like vanilla monotony with the character is defeated just by getting that subclass, right? Mm -hmm. But I I, I see what you're saying. Honestly, the thing that I do is I look at what the goals are. And 
Dan's a good example on this because sure he's a gnome investigator, but he's also taken a bunch of shit in Battlemaster, and he likes to tinker with stuff, and he's looking for his daughter, and 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 because Dan gave me a rich backstory and has a well-rounded character, I can give him a bunch of different shit. I, he doesn't need to get a plus one item ever. He just needs to be interested in the next thing. And I have a variety of different areas in order to give him more power here and there. My character, the one you were talking about, Lockie, was his main weapon was a hand crossbow. I think all the way up until level 20, I never had anything better than a plus one hand crossbow, right? And like I got that plus one arming up to go fight the big bad evil guy at the end of the game. Like I, I was more than content just rocking my standard run of the mill hand crossbow for the entirety of that three-year campaign. And that works for some people. But for James, for example, I know that when you're running Kynon, you don't need to have a plus three item. You just need to have a moment where you can fuck with someone else to feel better than them and another moment to light something on fire. Very much so. So that's it. Well, evil campaign. Yeah. Right? So. Yes. Evil campaign. <laughs> and everyone was totally on board. There was a social agreement that it was okay. And we all knew James. So it was to be expected. <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay. Dan, how would you adjust, or rather, how often would you adjust hit points or difficulties in session to meet a player's current mood. Oh, all the time. Now, this is a double-edged sword, and I recently fought this one. Um, all the time. I, 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 When I say pay attention, I'm also saying pay attention to the flow of combat and how it's going. When it comes to... If if they're blowing up your big bad evil guy before you get a chance to use the cool item or, or the cool ability, at least once. If if they're doing it in way too quick, then I'll, I'll boost hit points or I'll drop hit points to how that goes. I had a creature die... And the player said some witty little, like, thing, like the little witty little thing to it that pissed me off as a DM. And I was like, no, I'm I'm not letting you kill that character now. And that character was around for one more turn and I didn't give them the kill because of the quip. That was a mistake. Don't do that. I'm sorry, Brad. (laughs) So his character's named Thundar. And he went, you've been Thundar struck. And I went, fuck you. That thing's around for another No, serves him right. (laughs) Now, you see, I'm going to remember this when I don't reward you for jokes or puns at the table, Dan. People who listen to the podcast know I'm not the person who's throwing a lot of the puns out. No, you're the one taking the punishment. Yeah, usually. Yeah. James, do you adjust hit points or difficulties as a DM in session? Or are you going to let it ride and then figure it out before the next session? For the most part, I would let it ride. Unless it's, in, like as Dan said, if they're going up against your big evil guy and they've knocked 300 of his 400 hit points off before he's got his turn, Fucking for paladins. sure he's getting a bit more health to at least get a turn to do one thing. Whether he dies in the second turn, that's a different story, but if he hasn't had a chance to play, yeah, he's going to do a thing. And maybe his death throw... But he's going to do a thing. Yeah. But for the most part, let it ride. Players, for the most part, have things to bring each other up. Especially if your uh, world's rich with potions. So death is really inconsequential in this world. So if one player goes down, two players go down. Sure, if three players are going down or four against a horde of goblins. You fucked up as a DM at that <laughs> point. Everyone's going to wake up in hell next week and we're yeah. going to continue that. Yeah. Well, you can easily <laughs> do that too. You yep. fight their way you out of hell. ride it out. Yeah. I'm the same way. I'm going to rebalance in between the only time that I will actually really fuck with hit points is when pacing becomes an issue. Well, I talked about this, this gelatinous cube 
issue. I walked out of this house and I turned to uh, to Mieka because she was in town for this session. And I said, that was inherently flawed because we spent the majority of that session on one combat. It was a three-hour combat and nobody knew what to do or where to go or how to do it. Because everyone was running around with like chickens with their heads cut off. I feel like everybody had fun. But when Dan started to throw up distractions and that one's going to go in this direction, that one's going to go in that direction. Everyone else is still figuring out their characters at level one. Their answer was, I'm going to run away. Oh, no, Dan's sending one in that direction. Well, there's nothing else I can do. Oh, I'm going to run forward and hit it. Well, then it's going to eat you. Well, there's nothing else that I can do because I don't want to stand and wait my turn to climb a rope for two for two rounds, right? And there was a lot of that. I, ju- I don't know what to do because I'm level one. Poor session design on my part. Had that, had that been level 12, that would have been a great session. It was also attention issues for us as well, a little bit, for that specific example, just because, like... Each rope in this map led up to a different area. And I know for a fact, at least a couple of the other people on the table thought it was just a rope attached to the ceiling, not another hole up there. So like that was an entire avenue of that fight that we didn't explore because we thought the only three ropes out were at the far end of the battle. But these are pacing issues. That is the only time that I will. And I cut that short. I'm like, you guys have defeated this. You've gotten to the ropes. These things are so slow and the map is so big that you can all get up no problem. So we're just going to cut to what's happening at the top of the ropes. And that was fine. But it's the only time that I will actually cut an encounter short. Other than that, I'm with James. Let it ride. You got yourself into this mess. You are creative enough as a DM to get yourself out of it. Terry, accidentally, way back when, when he was a brand new DM, gave us the deck of many things. And not... Mm -hmm. Not let us draw from it, but gave it to us. And we had one character who was struck blind by it and then just kept flipping cards thinking that whatever happens should eventually undo the blindness. Seven cards later, Terry summoned a Baylor. Now he looked it up on Google to see what's in the deck of many things and he found a homebrew version of it. Which dropped a Baylor on a level 6 party. I, the cleric, was not there for that session. So when the Baylor showed up, it murdered almost everything around, including the monk character. So he took a, like a whole week away to then let us go into the afterlife to rescue the monk character and bring her back. Because he had to let it ride. Yeah. I have no problem doing that. So one thing I do want to mention here real quick is if you want to, we mentioned that meta is going to be helpful in this case, at least that conversation between DM and players. One thing to help you if you want to communicate these levels of bounded accuracy or whatever it is to your players, have a logistical, a logical reason for it, right? Um, and and communicate to them with that. You We mentioned AC and I'm going to use AC as an example. Depending on where that number of AC hits a different thing stops the attack from working, right? If it's up to 10, it's armor. If it's then, you know, three points or up to 15, you move it through dexterity, right? If it's up to 20, your shield or whatever it is, magical effect breaks the spell, right? Being able to use these base level designed into the game numerical numerical mechanics mechanics as your guideline for description will really help you seem like a far better DM than you think you are. <laughs> For example, if it's they've got an AC of 17, but they're carrying a shield, you know if they roll a 16, 
It hit, hit the shield. It hit the shield, right? Yeah. But if it rolled a 14 or below, the shield was not a factor in this. Yeah, so it hit the armor or, or they dodged to the side, right? So it's stuff like that that I would, I would pull into or, or just missed outright, right? Like it, I would encourage you when you're looking at these numbers as a DM, it may feel a bit overwhelming. Even when you get into like social skill and skill DCs, if you have a reason why a, you know, a five is easy on this check, here's, here's why, right? And it doesn't have to be something super concrete. I'm not saying for every encounter, break them down, but like have, have a thing to pull from. It will elevate your ability as a DM exponentially. I'm going to just jump on that really quickly. Do it the other way around too. This is why I want to know what my player's character sheets are. Because if James is super Dexy Monk and he's not, like, he's not going to wear armor. And I roll a 14 and it's not going to do damage to him. We know that he dove out of the way. But I need to know that as a DM so I'm not describing it bounces off your your back and like it that doesn't make sense for his character Mm -hmm. when you start to get into the weird breakdowns of the let's say a paladin who's got auras to this and we've got a breastplate and then i've got a belt that gave me plus one to ac and a buckler but i've got i'm gonna parry with this move and someone else cast a, a mage armor and like holy shit there's so much going on there having a little breakdown of my notes on my dm screen of at what point do what things hit what parts? Yeah. Makes your players more engaged in the shit that they've got going on for themselves. Yes. And suddenly defensiveness becomes something they're thinking about. And it pulls them into the, it immersion, it enhances the immersion in the game. It does. Yeah. And to even expand on what you were saying, Dan, the having a reason for what happens, like as the you get, example you gave of Terry, he could have had the reason where the last cave you guys were in, before you got that deck of many things, you actually fell down five floors and you were with being eaten by mind flares. Mm-hmm. So that's how this deck of many things came about. It was all an illusion in your head. So that's a one giving a reason as opposed to say, oh, your party just woke up fine. That's not a reason. Give them... As a, yeah. It's an extreme example, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that, that's off the top of your head. Yeah, yeah, off the top of my head, just give a reason why things are happening. They yeah. don't just happen for no reason, but anything can happen in these games. Which is why long rest pisses me off. But that's that, <laughs> that's another factor there. So you can check us out on social media at Instagram, Facebook, and on Reddit at It's a Mimic. You can also send us an email at info at It's a Mimic dot com for mailbag questions and the like. Okay, so obviously power creep is when the baseline power gets higher and higher and higher in a game. But an increase in power doesn't always denote power creep. For example, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything gave us a couple of new optional abilities for each class. It also gave us a much more palatable ranger to play. And say what you will about some sorcerer subclasses getting expanded spell lists while others don't now, the optional rules are an increase in power that don't fundamentally change the experience of the game. And the Ranger has now been brought up to the level of most of the other classes in playability. These additions to the games don't overstep the baseline, create further imbalance, or make older releases unappealing to explore. They just raise us up to the baseline. I would love to see a reprint of the Purple Dragon Knight where they fixed how fucking bad it is. Mm -hmm. Tritons are a great example. They just got dark vision. They needed it in the fucking first place. It made sense for them to have it. So when they got it, no one complained about power creep. 
it just brought them up to the level of everything else, right? So I mentioned incomparables before. I have a couple of examples of imbalances here, and I'd like to go over kind of how you guys would go about using an incomparable power boost to alleviate some specific examples here. So let's grab our dice and roll initiative. Got a nine. Six. Seven. Okay, Dan, you're first. The monk is always getting ahead of the party and getting cut off. Instead of increasing the rest of the party's movement or limiting only the monk, how do you fix this? Oh, I have battle at two ends of the battlefield. Like, I... I, I... Every single battle? Well, yes. It's... I mean, sometimes no, because sometimes the monk wants to be the guy who gets ahead, right? So, sure, let him let him play. And sometimes right? you're playing out of a module where they only have one drow in the next room. Yeah, um, but there are times where you start having things happen further in the back, right? Or, or you put in a situation or traps or whatever it is. I mean, monks, traps, it's a bad example because they're just going to jump over them and do don't monk shit. But putting things in to slow that monk down a little bit while still giving them the satisfaction of being that agile martial artist, that's how you get around that, right? You satisfy their need to be the nimble showman, but you also give the party a distraction long enough for them to catch up. How'd you handle it, James? Um, I would do something like, especially in dungeon sense, have the dungeon filled with a poison corrosive gas. When the party gets an item that gives up 45 feet around them of clean air. So the monk has that 45 feet of movement, but that's it. Yeah. As soon as they go past that, they start taking damage and heavy damage. So it forces them to stay relatively close to their party, but they can still run out ahead and get that first five hits in, depending on what level you are as a monk. Yeah. Yeah. In one round. And then yeah. you run on back. Yeah. Um, honestly, the thing that I would do is I would look at my room size. All you have to do is put a lock on a door and the monk can't get through that until the road catches up. Yeah. Right? Or sure, you can run down that hallway, but the next room is going to be 10 foot by 10 foot. Right? And if you're the first one in, how are you going to get out? <laughs> right? Just by having different terrain sizes and um, dimensions is enough to make the monk think twice. There's a blind corner with someone who's holding an action on a catapult around the corner or a wand of third level magic missile that monk is going to turn the corner first and then bup, 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 bup. their decks and evasion they get away for free though <laughs> from magic missile no they don't no they don't no, not magic missile. so so the idea here is to look at terrain and manage the overall whether it's poison gas maybe the further away you go the more damage you're taking from whatever that mobile item is or maybe you are giving them the odd combat down there by themselves. But that's how you're going to end up with a dead monk on your hand if you're not careful. So yeah, yeah. I'd only do that some of the time. Well, and but, that's... but variety, I think, is, is yes. the key there. Yeah. Right? So, Dan, the wizard keeps dropping darkness on the battlefield, which cripples the rest of the party. Instead of giving them all special goggles to let everyone see in magical darkness or removing the darkness spell, how do you fix this? Make them fight a bunch of Shatter Kai. Like make them fight a couple things that have shadow base to them and make it real make the wizard realize that throwing darkness at every single combat might not be the path to go, right? This is one of those negative reinforcement moments. Yeah, it's it's gonna be beneficial to kind of block line of sight. Darkness is a great spell, but it can bite your party in the ass in more ways than one. I mean, uh what is it? Uh there's a 
Uh, you don't even need Shatterkai. You need things with blind sense. You need right? things with blind sense or tremor sense or blind sight or a warlock with the proper invocation. They get shadow sight. sorcerer. A shadow sorcerer. They can right? cast their own darkness and see through it. Yeah. So like, there are so many ways to get around it. But I, I, I've always loved the idea of when you get to spells like darkness. It is not only a hindrance to the enemy, it's also a hindrance to your party, and it can be an advantage to the enemy if it's used improperly. So as a DM, play smarter, take advantage of it. Uh, similar to, I'd use a shadow sorcerer that has hold person, freeze him in the shadow, put up your thing, and just kill him. Kill him in the dark. He can't yell for help. He can't make an action because he's being held. You just end them in the dark, and your party will get them after. And they get back up I and they never, learn a lesson. I never want to play an evil campaign with you. No, you don't. No, no you, you don't. really no. don't. No, James, yeah. Terry, and I will fucking rock that shit. And the world will be just a desolate landscape of gravestones and tears. Hell yeah. A- Adam? So, um, honestly, for me, darkness is concentration. Oh, One yeah. of these yeah. things that you're running into over and over again with these spellcasters that can do silence or or fog cloud. Or they're doing these battlefield controlled things and they're using the same thing over and over and over again nine times out of ten it's concentration based ranged sure it's with disadvantage but if i've got seven hobgoblins one of them will hit one of them's going to start forcing concentration rolls Mm. right and that is when we're going to start to see this go away and suddenly mage armor is the first thing that gets cast not darkness well like you get into things like there 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 are two other uh small mechanics that really help with the bounded accuracy of the game and that is the concentration mechanic yep right not being able to cast four darknesses on a field really helps rein in the power and also the attunement slot mechanic yes right like yeah your party might have some sick magic items but they only have three of them at a time right like there there are ways to mitigate it all right the bard and the paladin have all the charisma in the party and do 100 percent of the role playing leaving the rogue and the artificer out of an entire pillar of the game. Without casting silence on the bard, which we're all tempted to do, or splitting the party, rude, how do you rebalance the social pillar? Not every single NPC in the game is going to want to talk to the pretty boy knight or the flamboyant uh, dandelion character, right? They're going to want to talk shop, right? So you're going to... Your, your pa- no rogue is going to want to talk to a paladin, right? So... Have NPCs in there designed for interacting with those characters who are not being able to interact with, right? You want a artificer going around? Okay, your dumb paladin and your moderately okay just because he knows some songs bard aren't going to be the guy who breaks down the delicate uh, schematics and vectors of mechanical phenomena with the gnome. Your artificer is going to be that guy. So you bring in that gnome tinkerer just for your artificer, right? Build NPCs to target those guys, to draw them out of their comfort zone. Similar for the people, but places as well, and also language. So going places where this is the sorcerer's family home, for example. Well, you're not going to send the bard to talk to the sorcerer's dad. He'll go talk to his dad or she or whatever the case may be. Or languages as well. They don't know every language between the two charisma casters, so make it a unique language to one of your players that doesn't. They don't have, so they have to talk. They have no option to. Yeah, we're with our Sunday game. There's another player at the table where we have all the exact same languages 
like both of us just point for point have mm. the exact same languages. And I'm just kind of like, kind of want to switch one out for a different one just so we can have that variety. variety yeah. Right. So it was a thing I was going to talk to the DM, <clears throat> Adam, about later. Yeah. I usually make a point of taking some random languages when I have options for more than one. When in doubt, giant. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a fearbolg. I get it. Yeah, I've used Goblin a few times, and it's come in, like, real handy. Yeah. It's actually ruined several DM's plans. They're like, the Goblins are talking, but you can't understand. I'm like, um, I actually can? Yeah. They're like, wait, what? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I took Goblin. And they're like, well, they're, they're doing this. I'm like, okay. Uh, hey, Wizard. Fireball? Fireball. <laughs> Fireball. <laughs> okay, so honestly, um, my answer for this is similar. I'm coming up with a game design answer for a social reason or an environmental reason to combat this idea of the mechanical boon. Just because the bard has got a plus 12 in persuasion doesn't mean that when he pisses off the shopkeeper, the shopkeeper's going to listen to him again next time they're in town. My suggestion is to have your NPCs have memories. Oh, not only have memories, but have motives. This just hit me. Um, How good does it feel when someone comes to you and asks you a question about something that you're a bit of an expert in, right? As players... We often use those knowledge skills to figure out what our characters know about a thing we discover. Having an NPC come up to us and be like, hey, I I know you're the party uh, mage and I have this question about how this arcane m- mechanical thing happens. Can you describe it to me? Or or draws that attention to them like, hey, what's this obscure religious thing that I found in this library, right? Bringing those problems to your players will also draw those players out of there comfort zone right and gets you to play the expert which at you know by tier two even compared to your normal commoner you're going to be the expert what is it it is arcana arcana nature history and and religion religion. those are the four they used to be knowledges right those are the four when i see a player choose those to be proficient in i'm honing in on that that is something they want to be good at and i actively in encourage my players to always choose at least one of them if it's on their list if well there's honestly, one of them on everyone's list uh honestly there's also going to be a lot of that shit in backgrounds as yes well. yeah yeah that's how i usually pick it up through a background no all right dan last question the party's made up of one hexblade warlock multi-classed with a battlemaster fighter variant human and three purple dragonite kobolds the purple dragon knights are vastly outclassed in combat by the hexblade battlemaster so how do you handle this as a DM without handing out magic weapons or punishing the Hexblade Battlemaster? Objectives in combat outside of combat, simply, right? Like pick up a item and throw this switch or move this orb from this location to another location to have this general Oh, okay, effect. you mean non-combat motivations in initiative? Within combat, yeah. 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 That Hexblade Battlemaster is going to want to fight things. Encourage him to do so by making him the star of combat while the five more social guys have to go and release the prisoners, open the locked door, activate the status, uh, the stasis crystals or whatever they need to do. Right? Yeah. That's that's how I would do it. James, what do you got? Similar to that, give them more things to do that don't involve combat. Because, yeah, that setup of class, multi-class and party build, there's yeah. not a lot you can really give them without punishing someone. Honestly, there are so many things that a Hexblade Warlock slash Battlemaster cannot do. For example, ranged attacks. 
I mean, they're a Hexblade Warlock. They've got Eldritch Blast. They've got the best. Sure. But uh, what is it? Is it Mage Armor or Shield? Which one is it that just, like, negates force damage? Shield. So, I mean, fuck you. Uh, half of my mages will have that now. They know you're coming. You are famous because you are a kick-ass warrior. Everybody knows it now. and They're, they're ready for you. Mm-hmm. There are tons of things that, the, that that one character can't do. Um, maybe they just can't climb a rope quite as well because they're charisma and dex based or however it is that they've built their character. You can look at the gaps because no one character can be built perfectly to be good at literally everything. At best, you can get jack of all trades. You guys are both sitting there scratching your heads going, no, fuck, I could do it. I could be good at strength, dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, and sanity checks. That, uh, be a paladin of six level or higher. It can be done. It can be done. But, uh, I, but no, no. But I guarantee it, you. It requires a little bit of shenanigans. No, I guarantee you that one week rope bridge defeats that paladin. Look, I've got. I simply. to race you, or you can stand back up. <laughs> as a, as a uh, half orc, yeah. I'll just stand, stand back, back up. up the You're good to go. Ground. Oh no, sir! You are in water. Even better. Even better. Yeah, and there's a waterfall. <laughs> I mean, there's yes. When you're literally God, you'll find the way. <laughs> well, but that's the point: is don't be discouraged because one person yeah. is clearly good at one thing, and everybody else isn't good at that. Even if they're clearly good at a lot of things, when you have one person taking over a table, there are story reasons and there are other mechanics to look into so that you can battle this idea of this power creep that's happening. There's this one character that's getting more and more and more powerful because you gave them some evolving intelligent weapon, which we've talked about in the past on the podcast. This is a lot of fun. You should hand this out. And I'm sitting there every time on the drive home going, we should not have said that. Someone's going to hand that out and they're going to have a superstar in their party. And everyone else is going to be sitting there just kind of thumb up their ass going, when do I get my ridiculous overpowered intelligent item? Mm-hmm. And I'm not handing out six of those things. I'll I hand do out like one. the idea of scaling items, though. I do like them as well. But that is a, an idea that I can work into my game design that I know from the beginning is going to... Not, not deal with power creep where the baseline is changing and I've got to re-up and figure out and, and undo in certain ways. Instead, I'm just evolving the characters appropriately yeah. until, the, until the right level. And, and I got to say, a scalable weapon does not necessarily need to be intelligent. No. So, are there any final thoughts from you guys before we wrap this episode up on power creep, bounded accuracy, and the action economy? Uh, not that we haven't already said. I mean, it, it's something every DM and every player should be aware of. We mentioned it briefly, but talk about it in your session zeros, guys. If you have a party and you're sitting down with your party build at session zero, and four of your players all want to play those kobold purple dragon knights, and there's that one guy who's just like, oh man, I'm going to be this hexblade battlemaster. Like, you might want to try to convince that, like, that's what session zero is for, is for this kind of situation. So... It starts happening, nip it in the bud. Yeah, similar to talk about it. And you can always have a session zero V2. That's a big thing to me where you can, if the game's going sideways, sit everyone down and say, hey, do we still want to go sideways? And if we do, how can we correct it so it's fun for everyone? Mid-game content is not just for role-playing and world building and character development it's also for finding creative ways to have this discussion at any point in time during a campaign 
So I guess the last thing that I want to bring up, Dan, is how did you resolve that crazy power creep scenario you talked about earlier? So when it comes to dark vision and stuff like that, I've made it known that I have an opinion. But the way that you could get around it is funny enough, just be really aware of lighting still. Dark vision, you don't get color. Torches work different from light, which works different than dancing lights, which works different than everything else, right? And thankfully, in the age of COVID, we have Roll20, which has interesting ways to like display lighting effects. And I've been able to utilize those to even make my characters who aren't playing those optimized races that just for some reason or other get it, make them feel important and, and useful in this exploration pillar of the game, right? So that's how I got around it. I think we know how you got around your zombie army. Yeah. Dropped them down a pit. Yeah. yeah. And this item that showed up for me, this like cure-all, I can get past all of these fucking giants. The giant issue was supposed to be a failure. It was a power imbalance on purpose. The power creep came when they whipped out this magic item. Because they sat there and went, oh shit, now what? And so then for the first time in literally 10 sessions, they looked at their list of items. And that's when this shit came up. Three sessions later, he had a choice. You can keep this item... And fight the bad guy. Or you can give up the item and not fight the bad guy. And he decided not to solo one-on-one against this guy. And he handed over the item. It was very, very, very obvious that he was outclassed. This was a level 20 fighter, level 20 warlock, level 20 wizard. And he was a level 11 champion fighter. So he opted to not fight the level 60 creature. Fair enough. Yeah. Right? And so when you give clear stakes... About if you decide to keep this or use this, it will end poorly. A lot of times they'll opt not to do it. For example, another one is uh, I like to, when shit starts to get out of control with the economy, where did you get those spell components? That right there is enough to make everybody stop and look real closely. And they're going to they're gonna think twice about decking out their carriage with hydraulics and a pimp mobile freaking license plate right so anyway i think that's it for this discussion on power creep in DD fifth edition we got a million more ideas and arguments about dungeon mastering so subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future next week we'll be returning to our conversation on dragons where we're going to take a look at some of the more famous dragons in fifth edition If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website at www.itsamimic.com, as well as our store for some awesome merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word on to everybody you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, requests, and questions for our mailbags can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. All right, guys, um, we have been talking about Power Creep this entire episode, as you know, and I want to know, outside of the core books, the DMG Player's Handbook, uh, Monster Manual, those level of books, what is your by far favorite new class option or feature or whatever it is? Okay, let's roll. I will miss the box. I got a seven. I got an 11. Nine. I'm going to straight up say that my favorite thing that exists ever is the Purple Dragon Knight edition to to, to fifth edition. I, really? Yeah, I love the Purple Dragon Knight. Hmm. It gives us a floor. 
to work on. Uh, yeah, I guess it gives us that low point. Yeah, yeah it, it makes me look at Rangers and go, you know what? Not bad, bud. You're okay after all. <laughs> yep, it, it makes it makes me look at some of the dumb. Tritons don't have dark vision when they first came out. It's okay. Have you seen the Purple Dragon Knight? <laughs> right? You don't have to be faster than the bear. You have to be faster than the slowest kid in class. Which is the Purple Dragon Exactly, right? Yeah. So, no, it's fun for me from a design perspective to say, okay, I know what the worst possible thing to do is. And that is make a social-only subclass for a fighter. And then not give it even all of the abilities. So um, I feel like every homebrew thing that I've seen since then is at least points for effort because it's better than that shit. Okay. So. James? For me, Shadow, Sor- Shadow Sorcerer. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm a big fan of Sorcerers as it is, as I'm sure everyone already knows. But just something about the mechanics of being able to get a darkness spell. To be able to have your uh, Hellhound, I believe it is, mm-hmm. that can impose yep. disadvantage and have an opportunity to attack. It gives a sorcerer just that one extra, not necessarily get out, but a little more security in being as squishy as they are. Cool. For me, it's the, I mean, they tout feats as being an optional feature, but everybody uses them. Um, The new feats we see in Tasha's that let you have just a flavor of the other classes, right? Like you you could have the Battlemaster stuff or you could have um, a... uh, you get like a, a gunslinger level of stuff, right? Like these these uh, optional uh, class-based feats I really like because it prevents having to multi-class and you just get the little bit of the flavor for it. It's not overpowered. It's not broken. It's just that little bit of the flavor of the class so you don't have to commit fully to a class. You just got to wait till your fourth level to get into it. Or first if you're variant human. Ugh. Uh, you can take Shield Grappler, which will then push you and your I should do decks. A, you and I should just sit across a table and do, like, character builds. Just a whole episode of min-max builds. With Adam in the room just groaning the entire I literally time. have the opposite of an erection right now. <laughs> it's an innie? <laughs> yes. Thanks again. Nah. Thanks again for listening to the It's a Mim... No, we're not the It's a Mim podcast. Just mustard gas them. <laughs> <laughs> That's your answer to literally everything. I definitely use mustard gas against uh, Xanathar. Jesus. My DM allowed me to have the ingredients without realizing what it's for. <laughs> then we just mustard gassed him with our uh, monk that could run like 180 feet around. <laughs> for fuck's sake. Jesus. Tabaxi so, monks, man. Tabaxi It wasn't monks. even Tabaxi. It was an awakened bear. Oh, okay. That's so it was just a homebrew race. So it was just, just as, as bad, bad, if not worse. <laughs> Do you have a shout out or anything? Do you want to do a shout out? We'll get James to do the Instagram bits. I thought that's what we were doing. Yeah. Fine. Fuck you, Dan. Rude. Dan. Fuck you. Thanks for listening. Bye.